leather sandals, but never did, crafted on site by a fabulous furry freak, fresh, seemingly, from the commune or some commune or other, his adobified kitty corner wafting with that leather smell, biker leather smell, so the little girls they did guess. And when he got close to them and leered, they could subversively smell scary, sexy, bearded man smells and triangulate from there. There was an on-campus bowling alley, wax and pine-smelling, where Gwen and her grade school peeps, they didn't call it middle school then, sometimes hung on weekends instead of taking the 83 Wilshire or hitching to the beach. The blast of A.C. hit you right when you walked in. Odor of food court and future life, campus bookstore, indoor pool, bowling lane sounds and smells, a grand and grandly sunlit subversive world. Gwen remembered thinking, this is the smell of college, the smell of being grown up, the mysterious, alluring, subversive smell of the end of carefree days. Her memories were saturated with the erotic energy unleashed by cliquish tween tribes venturing out on their own, testing wings with parental approval, the village being a plaza that was considered safe for pubescent gazelles, back in the day when so many things were considered safe. Their pairs upon perfect pair of rangy, downy legs shod in magic-markered vans, perspiry, hormone-blasted packs of flower-power girls wearing chunky boyfriend ID bracelets, some of them, bought and engraved at P.O.P. on the pier, virgin, wannabe wild-childs, out hunting and gathering for what they knew not. Then her trips to Westwood became the stuff of nightmares. Gradually, with the brutal, ardent fellowship of cancer survivors, Telma's portmanteau, dawn broke in Gwen's challenged cancer mom life. The C community was extraordinarily strong and supportive and unflinching, knitting melanoma newbies into a single, gargantuan, gargantuanly heroic quilt. Aside from the 1,000 useful things Gwen was taught, to change dressings, what to look for in getting the jump on opportunistic infections, what to hope for and what not to hope for, or what to hope and not to hope for too much, the useful trick of rolling down the window and screaming as you drove along the spine of Mulholland, the cancer survivors helped her develop a spiritual practice. For the first time in Gwen's life, she meditated. She yogaed and breathworked and self-hypnotated. She alternately begged, bitched, and railed at, and became inexplicably devoted to, her higher power. A mere month from ground zero, all the cancer folk revved from zero to hero. She no longer needed to listen to CDs to trance out. She was a quick study, and by then could guide her own meditation, levitating and vipassinating, without oral aid, to a private fantasy island, mystical cave, or black sand beach, some safe, bespoke, exhilarating, unicorny place, any airy-fairy or not conjuring that might serve as a light to shine its incorporeal voltage down on her daughter's wayward cells, diffusing, disarming, disrupting, with its otherworldly assassin energy, blasting all those fucked-up cells to kingdom come or wherever. At first it was hard, so hard. Gwen was an unbeliever. 
not triple XL, but L, maybe M, not a Hitchens, but a large to medium agnostic, maybe L slash M, but you couldn't go through something like this without investing, believing, trusting in something other than unbelief. You just couldn't. She'd take Reiki, Cancer Kid Mom workshops, and wishing on falling stars in the Sedona sky over a vacuum any day. You'd have to be an asshole fool to go with vacuum over prayer. You'd have to be sick. Then, something turned. Suddenly, she was an XXXL believer. She couldn't say how or why, but Gwen became of an instant grateful. It was that simple. So simple. Grateful Max had lived long enough to spend three years with their daughter. Grateful for all her cancer survivor ladies and cancer dads and cancer kids. Grateful that after Thelma's surgery, the doctor...